Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome back to the Defiant Spirit. I'm Baruch Levy, also known as B, and I want to thank you for tuning in. We're going to jump right into our conversation, what I call the gene, what do I call it? The genogram, the geniogram, the genogram. Yeah, genogram. Um, so a genogram, G-E-N-O-G-R-A-M, is a family history, an inventory from an emotional um, therapeutic perspective, looking back, looking at your family tree, and really understanding who the influential people, influence can be positive and negative in your life, and really unpacking and working through that. Well, I've been using the um, Enneagram and merging it with this idea of the genogram, so the geniogram, and looking at your family history, where you come from, your roots, utilizing the Enneagram. For those of you who don't know the Enneagram, if you're watching, you can see a picture right behind me of nine um, nine types. Enneagram means nine. So nine basic personality types. Now, one of the reasons why I use the Enneagram in my coaching and counseling practice, and if you haven't worked with me yet, I would love to work with you utilizing the Enneagram because it is shorthand. It, it saves us so much time. I can understand you where you come from, who you are, where you're going. Now, it does not mean it's who you are. It just means I have a roadmap. We have a roadmap to navigate together. Where you go when you're in fear, when you're in reaction, when you're unconscious, you don't even realize it. And then you read the Enneagram and it's just mind-blowing how accurately it describes us. Now, it's only the starting point of who you are because as my teacher, mentor, Viktor Frankl says, you could never be reduced and never should be reduced to a number, not to an Enneagram type, not to a Myers-Briggs type, not to any type. You're not a type. But when you're in fear, when you're unconscious, when you're in reaction, you are not your defiant spirit, as he would call it. You are the opposite of that. You're just an automaton sleepwalking through life like the rest of us. Nothing personal. It's where we all go when we're in fear, when we're unconscious. So the Enneagram is this amazing roadmap, blueprint, shorthand to get us into the terrain of where you, who you are not and where you go when you are not your highest self. And to get back to your defiant spirit, to your true self, to move forward with, with tools, with rules, with, with the roadmap. It also works unbelievably when you start using it as a genogram, as a way to understand your family's history and what you've inherited for the better and for the worse and how you can start paying attention to it to understand the family dynamics with those who came before you, but not just those who came before you. We use it in my family, I would say on a daily basis. I am, of course, an Ennea nerd. My family is Ennea fluent, shall we say. So they're open to it. They're not passionate about it, but it's amazing to me how often they turn to it. It's not shocking when I turn to it. It's shocking when they turn to it almost daily to get to the point, to get to the the source of the issue, to 
describe a challenge they're having with me or each other without having to get into blame. It's really beautiful to see a family use the Enneagram to communicate, to stop reacting, to start responding. So I've been working with more and more, not only individuals, but also families or couples or friend groups. Um, I've done every single combination at this point you can imagine. It's transformative. So if we haven't worked together as an individual, as a couple, as a family, as a friend group, reach out to me. Let's do your Enneagrams. Enneagrams? Yeah, Enneagrams, uh, plural, for you, for your loved ones. Now people say to me, B, you know, what age can my kids take it? Just depends on the kids. Um, I would say, yeah, really just depends on their Enneagram type. So I have a son who's 12 who probably took it at 10 and he's an Enneagram 4. So he's way deeper than all my other kids combined. Love them very much. But he's just got this depth as an Enneagram 4, the individualist. So it depends on the kid. It depends on the Enneagram type they are. You can give it to them and it doesn't do any harm. Um, some people are, they, they discourage it at an early age. I don't know. I think it's like anything else. It's how you use it. It's why you use it. Don't weaponize it, but type of person who's listening to the Defiant Spirit ain't going to weaponize it. You're using it so you can better understand them and they can better understand themselves. My my 12-year-old um, probably uses it more than my all my other kids, so really is not age-bound. You also don't have to have your kid do it. I mean, you can do it for them. I could go through and fill out the questions, really putting myself in his shoes. Does it give me his exact Enneagram description and the instincts, subtype, the, you know, everything, all the nuances? No, it does not. But you don't need all the nuances. We just got to ballpark our families, at least to get going in the conversation. And I'll show you what I mean. Now, I have family members, as do you, who have, who have passed on. They're no longer here. They certainly didn't take it in their lifetime. So all I can do is piece it back together again. But that's also part of the transformative experience. And I'll tell you about my family and how it's really helped me heal some of the brokenness that I believe um, has been healed through this, not only the Enneagram and the outcome, but also the process. So if you're not looking, I would love for you to see the slide I'm about to share. If you're watching on video, you'll have it right in front of your eyeballs. And if you don't, I'll make it available on my website. Just go to the podcast page on the defiantspirit.org, scroll to the bottom, and at the bottom, I try to put all of my slides. If, it's not, if, if a slide's not up there and I've spoken about it in a podcast, shoot me an email, be at defiantspirit.org or baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, at defiantspirit.org, and I'll shoot you the slide. Okay, so if you haven't um, heard of the Enneagram, this will be good orientation. And if you have and you haven't done it with your family or your friends group, this will be, I think, inspiring and you'll want to reach out to me afterwards. Okay, so I'm sharing with you my family, at least my immediate family's Enneagram, their Geneagram. And I'm just going to assume you're looking at it. I'll try to describe it as much as I can, but it might be hard to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time for me. So looking at this, what you see is the Enneagram, all nine types, and around it I've put my immediate family. So that's my kids, my spouse, um, my siblings, my parents, and my grandparents. I could have gone beyond that. I've, I really don't have enough data for cousins or for um, great-grandparents. But with that said, um, you can really speculate on, if not, you know, exact 
numbers patterns. As an example, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, that's of um, Eastern European descent, and I think a lot of Ashkenazi Jews will resonate with what I'm about to say because as an Ashkenazi Jew, and I say that differentiating from the Sephardic Jewish line, which is more of the Spanish and the um, um, other side of the family tree, little less trauma or a different type of trauma, but Ashkenazic Judaism has been traumatized over particularly the past few centuries, but thousands of years, frankly, and in particular, the Holocaust. So Jew Judaism or Ashkenazic Judaism is very much an Enneagram 6 experience. And I've done a lot of work around thinking about the inheritance of my birth religion and the tradition of which has so deeply influenced me, um, my, both my struggles with it as well as my love of it. And so, but that six pattern can be seen all throughout my family, certainly a collective, sort of a global understanding. And that really helps me understand where I've come from, where I'm at, where I'm going, what part do I want to continue to carry, what part do I want to leave behind, and what do I want to carry forward for myself, my children, their children. And so becoming conscious of where we come from. We could do it as Americans. I think we're very much an Enneagram 3, the Achiever Society. Um, however, I think we're also morphing into an Enneagram 7, the Enthusiast. So we could look at those patterns. There's really so many different ways we could play this. So you can use the Enneagram to understand where you've come from, from a global macro perspective. I think it really becomes powerful when you can drill down into your specific family members. And again, for me, it's really my immediate family going back to my grandparents. You, there's no wrong way to do this. I've worked with people who've gone back a few generations. I've worked with people who are adopted and they don't know who their birth parents are, but we've worked through their intuiting where they came from. So that's an it's just such an amazing process to talk it through, to think it through, to work it through. And it's not static. You know, at first I thought, for instance, my father, who's deceased, first they thought he was a six. Then I thought he was an eight. And as I went through this process, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I put this together. I just put it together for this podcast um, 24 hours ago, but I wrote it all down and mapped it out and thought it through and did some journaling on it about a year ago. Anyways, when I started to see the shape up and realized my brother's an Enneagram one, my son's an Enneagram one, I think my father's mother was an Enneagram one, it just became so clear to me. He's over here on the Enneagram one, the reformer space. And the process was really meaningful for me. And I'll tell you a little bit more about about that. Okay, so if you're looking at this, then what you see are, and also I added to it one other person who, who was a brother and is a brother to me. He passed, his name is Mark, and Mark was um, as meaningful and central to my life um, as anybody, even as much as I love my brother and my sister, they weren't my contemporaries, they're younger, but Mark was uh, my, I, my age, my parents were best friends with his, my grandparents were friends with his grandparents, and Mark and I were together every step of the way up until our late 20s when I met Ariella. And Mark passed a few years ago. So he's, I put him on there because he's my brother. And I also found it very interesting that he and my sister and my daughter occupy the same type, even almost, in fact, they also have the same subtype. 
Okay, so when I'm working with clients, we'll do the Enneagram assessment. If you work with me, you'll have your assessment, and then we can start adding on family members, or we can utilize our time together to talk through and profile, put them into what you think makes sense. Again, this isn't science, and it's not doesn't do damage if you put them into the wrong number, because we all have all nine of these numbers in us. So if you're picking up, let's say you think there are two, but you're not sure maybe there are nine, the helper or the peacemaker, there's a lot of commonality between those two numbers. And maybe they feel like a two and they act like a nine because eight, nine, and one are the action types, two, three, and four are the feeling types, five, six, and seven are the thinking types. And we have all of these in us. So, you know, that makes sense that they could be a two, they could be a nine, and we can go back and forth. It's more of the process which is so impactful and meaningful and doing this work together. Okay, um, so if I were working with me as a client, I would have placed me, we'll refer to me as B. Uh, I feel a little pompous doing that, but sort of role-playing here. So B would put his himself in, and as you can see, um, Baruch Halevi is an Enneagram 8. He's up there. Now, what you're looking at in that circle around Baruch Halevi is, or B, is um, that top description. I call it the maverick. This is the subtype. So remember, there's nine types, and then there's three subtypes, and that's based off of your instinct. I've done and we'll do more conversations about subtypes and instincts. I just want you to see for now because it's it plays into distinguishing the different um, people in the same Enneagram type. So for instance, I'm an Enneagram 8, a challenger. My daughter's an Enneagram 8. Now we both happen to have the same subtype because she's a sexual 8 and I'm a sexual 8. And a sexual is one type of subtype. Self-preservation is a second type, and social is a third. So all nine types are either self-pres, sexual, or social, and that defines the subtype. So I'm a sexual eight, and I call that the maverick. Um, over on the nines, my daughter Shoshana, well, they're all, it doesn't really work, because my daughter Shoshana, my sister Rebecca, and my friend Mark are all self-preservation nines, so they're all peacekeepers. Um, if you look at the Enneagram ones, I have my dad, who is a, he, he was, I believe, a sexual um, one. My brother was a, is a sexual one, Zach. My son is a self-preservation one. So you can see, Zach is an idealist. My dad is an idealist. My son is called the promise keeper. These are my names, but there's a rhyme and reason to why they're called that. Self-preservation, the promise keeper, sexual ones, my dad, um, my my um, brother, and my grandmother, probably my grandma babe, who's my paternal grandmother, was a sexual one, I think. I, I don't know. I, she died when I was 15. Not coincidentally, by suicide. My father died by suicide, and they were both idealists. So I think there's something there, and we can talk about it. But they're different subtypes than my son. And my different subtype, I think, than my maternal grandfather, my Grandpa Jack. It's my mom's dad, obviously. And so my Grandpa Jack, I believe, was a social one. And he was a he was the teacher. He wasn't a teacher, but he was the teacher in his subtype. So that's what you're looking at on the top. So not only are we looking at the Enneagram type, which is informative, but we also get into the subtype because... Back to my son versus my dad. 
my son Yehuda has he is he's not as fiery as my brother or my dad. That sexual isn't just it's not sex. It's intensity. Think of it, it could be called the intense version versus the self-focused version, self-preservation. My son is much more subdued, focused on his well-being. My dad did not focus on his well-being at all to his detriment. So there's a fire and an intensity with my dad that isn't so present with my son. So they're both Enneagram ones. They're both reformers or perfectionists. They both, um, and my, and my um, brother, I didn't know my grandma that well. And by the time I did meet her, she was really so far gone through electroshock treatment and all kinds of medications that I can't, I just can't know. But I do remember pieces enough to place her into the one. Again, maybe I'm wrong. My grandpa Jack, though, was also very similar to my grandson. There's this principled nature, also with my brother and my dad, but especially my grandpa and my son, I see a very similar thing. There's this um, do-good quality, almost a Boy Scout-like quality. And so you can really feel that in the promise keeper or certainly in the perfectionist, the reformer, and the one, all of these people. And really pronounced in my, my son in a more muted way and my grandfather in a more teacher-ish way, if you will. And then moving over to my, um, my mom, who is an unequivocally an Enneagram to the helper. And her mom, my maternal grandmother, just like my mom, like cut from the same cloth. I think they're both, I think my maternal grandmother, my grandma Flo, was a self-preservation too. I know my mom is a self-preservation too. I call this subtype the nurturer, sort of the quintessential mother. And so um, when I think about my mom and my grandma, there's so, my, there's so many similarities. Now, very different you know, in nuance and feel, nobody's the same. Even if you have all these same details, still not the same because there's eight other numbers. They may have had their numbers arranged in a totally different order and I can walk you through that you know, when we do a deep dive. But still, think of it as each number is sort of a sport and each of the subtypes are a um, different position in, on the, in the sport. Like if if it's if we're talking about football, you know, we're all Enneagram ones are playing football, but a self-preservation one might be a more of a quarterback feel, and a sexual maybe more of a running back feel. But they're still the same game, if you will, versus a one and a four, which is like ping pong versus um, football. So if you're in the same Enneagram type, you're in the same ballpark, you're in the same sport and the same sort of event, same energy, but different nuances. Now moving on, I have no threes in my family that I could think of, um, the achievers, but we have two fours in my immediate family, Ariella, obviously my wife, and uh, my youngest son, Aviv. Four is the individualist, the romantic, the, um, the deep soul, the deep emotionally sophisticated types. They're empaths. And so you look at, it's amazing to me. Ariella and Aviv have this magical bond. She loves all of her kids, but she has this special bond with her youngest. Now, maybe it's because he's the baby and um, we call him Shmoopy, <laughs> if you've ever watched the Colvergs, because there's a Shmoopy thing. Um, but I think it really comes down to they're both empaths and they just feel so deeply and they communicate. They speak the same language. 
So Ariella is, however, a self-preservation four, and that looks very different in some ways than a social four. So Ariella sort of carries herself a little more, she harnesses her, her suffering. All fours have this deep suffering, but she really carries it close to her. That's why it's called the stoic. That's what you're looking at at the top. Whereas Aviv, um, he just, his heart's a little more broken. You know, every time something bad happens to one of his animals or anybody, it just hits him. And he, it might hit them the same, but he doesn't hide it away or carry it as close to his vest as she does. And that's the nuance of the empath versus the stoic or self-preservation for versus social for. I'll tell you about the bottom part um, either a little bit later or probably in, the, in another podcast. My paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, Grandpa Harold, definitely a five. He was an um, incredibly withdrawn, quiet type. Really emotionally sort of not expressive. Doesn't mean fives don't have emotions. It just means they don't lead with emotions. They're much more thinking. This is the thinking triad. Remember, two, three, four is feeling. Five, six, and seven is thinking. And so my grandpa just had this sort of cerebral, rational piece to him. And um, self-preservation, I believe, was his instinct. And so that I called the Spartan. And just a, sort of a conservative with a small c nature. You know, he had, he had some wealth, but he never showed it. He drove the same Honda Accord for like 10, 20 years. It was also, a, you know, a different era, sign of the times. But there was a Spartan-like quality to his existence. And then up to my daughter, Maya, who's an Enneagram 8, sexual 8, which scares me as a father saying that, but I know what it means. And it just means, it scares me for different reasons, not because of the sexual part, but because sexual is the most intense of the instincts, sexual, self-preservation, social, and 8 is the most intense of all the Enneagram types. So out of the 27 combinations, the poor girl has my type and subtype. And um, I guess that's a, that's a great place to transition because... I do think, or I see quite often, that there will be two, not only types, but subtypes in the same family. It's not unusual. Statistically, it is, because if there's 27, I mean, unless you're going to have, you know, 27 people in the immediate family, statistically, it probably wouldn't add up. But it does. At least I, I only have, you know, anecdotal evidence. I haven't done any scientific studies. But more often than not, I see the same type in, let's say, if somebody has on average three children, I'd say one of the kids oftentimes is the same as one of the parents. Um, sometimes it's one child like one parent and another child like another parent, like in my household. Or it can go the opposite direction, which is almost a yin-yang. So you'll have like an Enneagram 1 um, come from an Enneagram 8 and 4. Well, that's my son. And Really, eight and one are very different, and certainly one and four are very different. So you might have yin-yangs going on. My daughter Shoshana is my yang, and I'm the yin, or whatever one is softer, she is. Everyone is harder, we are, myself and Maya. So I think there's a lot of truth to opposites attract, but also we create and recreate ourselves in a thousand different ways. And, and really looking at, you know, who is in alignment with whom and who struggles the most with whom. So just because you're the same type doesn't mean you got it made. In fact, sometimes it's like fire. My daughter Maya and I can be fire because she's fire and I'm fire. My daughter Shoshana is water. 
right? She's, um, you know, much softer, much quieter, much less intense until she's not. But it's just a very different vibe. And so looking at this, I start to see I, I've had to learn how to parent four kids on here, each one of them based on their Enneagram type, based on who they are. But the, again, the Enneagram type is an amazing roadmap. So playing that out just a moment, I think I'm going to do a separate podcast on the bottom half. It's super important, but um, I really don't think I want to open up a new can of worms. Staying with parenting and how I use this for myself, or if I was working with this guy, Baruch Halevi, with the crazy name that nobody can pronounce, I would talk to him about how do you, you know, um, where, where do you come up against it with each one of the kids? So, for instance... When Shoshana and I will have a hard time is when I'm eating out and I'm, you know, going, I'm on fire and I get really fiery. Her immediate reaction, initial reaction is to retreat, to hide. She's a turtle that goes into its shell. It's so interesting because growing up with my sister and my best friend Mark, I would always burn too hot and that's when things would come undone with them. Mark would go away. Rebecca would go away. Shoshana goes away. They that's they don't like conflict. And so I think they have eights in their lives because eights can stir it up and get into it on their behalf. I, I used to come to Mark's defense all the time. He was sort of like my kid brother, even though he was a couple weeks older than me. But it was only because he was an Enneagram 9. And I would, I think he liked feeding off that energy. I sort of fed him. And I certainly liked the, um, the sobering and quieting calm. Well, it says underneath their calming presence. And um, Shoshana and Rebecca are the gentle presence. Again, nuances, but all peace, peacemakers. And I, I know that they brought my um, blood pressure down. Still do. Shoshana, just being in her presence brings it down. Being in Maya's presence it's like for me drinking too many espresso. She's the energizer. That's her configuration at the bottom. She's got this energy, this intensity. Now, I absolutely respect it. I even love it. Sometimes it's too much. But really, she's just reminding me that I'm too much and where I'm too much. And so um, parenting Shoshana has to look very different than Maya. My favorite example is with Maya and with Yehuda, and Yehuda being the one, much more visibly, viscerally strong. Nines don't seem quite as strong. They are. They're just rooted under the soil strong. But eights and ones are more above the surface. Now, eights are more expressive and ones are more repressive, but there's a strength or at least an outward strength through an eight and a one. And so I have a much more confrontational style with Maya and Yehuda. Now, you might look at it at the outside going confrontational, but you have to understand, Maya has a hard time with subtleties, as do I, because we are sort of a thick skin, and we need that intensity. So Maya and I will, you know, I'll go straight at Maya, and she'll, um, she may not like it, but she can filter it, and she'll hear it and she'll you know she either shut me out while staring at me in the eyes or she'll just walk away in an appropriate way an appropriate time whereas Shosh, Shoshana 
it's almost a shattering and I can't get her back. So I've had to learn how to bring down the volume with Shoshana, bring up the volume. Actually, I don't have to work that hard to bring up the volume with Maya. And with Yuda, he's definitely in between the two of them. And so in his early years, it would be fiery and we wouldn't hear each other. Now, I still direct, you know, I'm so much more direct with him. I tell him exactly what needs to be said. But I'm very conscientious that he internalizes things much more than Maya because there's an inward energy with the one. There's an outward with an eight. And so Yuda will internalize things and beat himself up. He doesn't need me to point out his flaws. My work with Yehuda, I've said it many times before, is all about helping him be gentler with himself, kinder with himself. My work with Shoshana is to help hold her accountable to a higher standard, to speak up, to speak out. My work with Maya is to help her harness her fire so she doesn't have a scorched earth policy like her old man. My work with Aviv down at the bottom is that I've had to learn how to hold out the garbage pail, which Ariella taught me a long time ago, and just let him puke his suffering, verbal suffering. I mean, maybe, maybe physical, I'd hold the bucket there too, but I have to treat it like an emotional vomiting. I've shared with you before, I'll pick him up from school and he'll have all this drama. And as an eight, I'm like, I don't want to hear it. It's a waste. It makes me mad. And I used to shut him down. And now I just say, is there anything else, dear? Is there anything else, dear? Is it? And I let him throw up all this emotional drama. Most of the time, it's not even his. He needs to get it out. This is how a four navigates through the suffering, through the drama, through the relationships. And, um, and so really giving Aviv more space to express himself. Fours are the expressive types. And I could easily shut him down if I'm not conscious because eights really get, you know, hard and invulnerable as a way to protect ourselves from that scary emotional drama. I rarely watch dramas on TV because it just, I watch action. I watch shoot 'em up movies. I can feel the adrenaline. It like, it speaks to me. I have a hard time with dramas. Probably should watch more dramas to really get in touch with that. So again, my reaction, um, we all are doing our work here. So with Aviv, I've had to learn how to make more space for him to express. And there's a similarity between Aviv and Shoshana because four, five, and nine are on this um, sort of, they're not connected by lines, but you can see, obviously, the top is nine, bottom is four and five, four plus five equals nine. There's a withdrawing energy with all three of these. These are the withdrawing types. And so if somebody's withdrawing, you don't go chasing after them. You just hold space so that they can come to you on their time frame when they're ready. All right. Well, you know, I went down the parenting path. I think I'm going to do a part two on the bottom half, which I call your whole type. And then I'll also talk to you about um, healing generational trauma. That was a little more present day. So I guess we'll do a, a multi-part series. Um, so let's start there with the, um, the geneogram and present day family, and then we'll go backwards, and then maybe we can talk about um, future and how to move forward your lineage. So if, uh, again, if you haven't reached out, please shoot me an email. I would love to hear from you, baruch at defiantspirit.org, B-A-R-U-C-H at defiantspirit.org. 
and get you into an Enneagram assessment. I used to say take the free one. Don't take the free one. If you can, invest in a decent one. I use the most decent of them all. I use the best one. Um, and I don't just say that, but I get no kickbacks from them. It costs me money, um, but it's worth every penny. It's Integrative Enneagram, IEQ9. It's the gold standard. It gives you all the data that I'm re referencing. Most Enneagram assessments do not give you much data. So nothing, no harm, no foul. You can take a freebie, but if you want a good one, reach out to me. It's a worthy investment. I'll also make you one of these, what I call um, constellations, which is the picture version of it. And I have this hanging up in my office and I just sort of orient myself to it and think about it quite often. It's really a, just a quick um, roadmap for me before I step out into the unknown and step on it as eights tend to do. So anyways, um, Yep, uh, let's tune in for part two, and we'll call a day a part one. And until then, defy your number and live your spirit. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review and share this podcast with others. To learn more about the Defiant Spirit, get more inspirational content, or see how we might work together to live your Defiant Spirit, visit defiantspirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your Find this